0: You're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Occupation Station Podcast. I'm Diane Donato. Occupation Station is a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, the largest podcast content directory dedicated to the business and profession of pharmacy. And now for our next guest, Mina Tadros is currently a scientist at Women's College Hospital in Toronto and investigator with the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, a cross-provincial research team based at St. Michael's Hospital. Mina's research interests lie in drug policy research and the post-marketing surveillance of safety and effectiveness of medications used to treat chronic diseases. He completed a Ph.D. in pharmacoepidemiology at the University of Toronto and previously completed a master's in health outcomes and policy research at the University of Tennessee and a doctor of pharmacy at Albany College of Pharmacy. He also completed a pharmacy residency in drug information and health outcomes at the University of Tennessee. And St. Jude's Children's Research Hospital. He's a practicing pharmacist. He's worked in a variety of clinical settings. He's also currently a fellow at the Institute for Clinical Evaluative Sciences. And we want to thank you so much, Mina, for being with us today.
1: Well, thanks for the opportunity to to be on this uh, podcast.
0: There are just so many directions we could go. You have such a wide background and you're involved in so many things, but I guess we'll start out with the post-marketing surveillance. That's one area your research interests lie in. What does this mean and why is that important?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and sort of one of my very strong passions and sort of why I do what I do. You know, post-marketing surveillance is the idea that, as we know, most drugs go through a pretty rigorous process to become, in the U.S., FDA approved and in Canada, it would be Health Canada approved. You know, they go through phase one, phase two, phase three trials and the trials get larger and larger. Then they're approved to enter the market and so most people, and what the FDA is assessing is the safety and efficacy of these agents and whether they should be approved on the market. And, and that's when they're allowed to be sold. Before that, the only way you can access these drugs is through you know, being on one of those trials or, or you know, there's very few other mechanisms to get access to them. But the issue is, and sort of what's misunderstood, is that there's two things that happen once a drug hits the market. One is that most clinical trials are actually not powered to assess safety. So things that are very serious but rare that happen in one in 10,000 people, for example, won't be picked up in clinical trials. And so clinical trials are really assessing tolerability and they're seeing if there's any severe signals But, you know, when it comes to some of these really serious adverse events, we don't know until they hit the market. You know, I don't want to scare people, but again, these are often very rare. They happen in maybe 1 in 10,000, 1 in 100,000 people. But it really is not apparent because some of these trials are only like, even some of the biggest trials are 5,000 people. This becomes even more important when you're looking at drugs for rare diseases or drugs with smaller clinical trials. The second thing is that there's this weird thing that happens with clinical trials where they're only... we we call it a healthy user bias. People who sign up or meet the criteria to be in a clinical trial often are not what we would see in the real world or in the pharmacy when we're there. So for example, the joke I like to make is that most diabetic patients that enter trials, you know, they don't have, they're often a little bit younger, they don't have a lot of history of like having a heart attack or things like that. But then when we think about the patient that we see in the pharmacy, that's very, very different. And so what that means is we need to actually monitor what happens when we release these drugs into the wild and that's why post-marketing surveillance is so important.
0: What are some of the steps that you take to do that?
1: What we do is we apply and leverage a lot of like big data methodologies to be able to do that. So what's really nice in Canada is we actually, and, and there's a lot of data holdings like this in the U.S. as well, is that all the data from patients going to the hospital, going to the doctor, what drugs they get, are collected. And by leveraging those, we can actually do real-world studies to be able to look at that. And so the process starts with knowing if there's a signal, and then following through to kind of apply these and use some of these larger data data pools to be able to assess some of that. And so it's a really great opportunity to do that. And sometimes it might have been a signal that was raised in a clinical trial. For example, like I had a recent paper that looked at a drug called Mirabegron, and there was some clinical trial evidence that suggests that blood pressure went up, but we had no idea if that rise in blood pressure translated to heart attacks and tachycardia, etc., and so we were able to go in, and we didn't find any major signals. And so, you know, that, that's a good news story because instead of like telling people that it's really scary, uh, we can we can conf- you know comfort people to say like it seems like there's not a major signal for this, and and, and you can feel safe using these medications.
0: Would you tell pharmacy students they should spend a little extra time on things like data management and statistics?
1: You know, I think they should use the coursework that they have. As an opportunity to see if it kind of sparks any sort of passion in them and that's you know that's what happened for me I currently teach pharmacy students here at the University of Toronto and I teach the critical appraisal course and I'm I tell them I'm not teaching you to become a researcher in this course but what I'm hoping is that there might be a few of you here that this sort of raises an interest and so you know obviously my course tries to teach them how to read studies so that when they're in clinical practice they're able to appraise them but there are a few students in that class that in hindsight are really myself uh, that that kind of course will spark some sort of passion and then they'll be like that this is really neat and so if they find an interest in coding data asking the right questions and statistics and, you know, this whole area of real-world evidence and health outcomes might be a really great lead for them.
0: We, of course, talk about frequently the whole process of getting a drug approved. You just mentioned about that. And now you're drawing our attention to the idea of how much work there's involved in the post-marketing surveillance. It all adds up. And you've tweeted about the rising cost of catastrophic drug costs. It concerns everyone, whether they're in the business or not. What do you think could be done to combat this?
1: Yeah, so... (laughs) drug costs are obviously a major issue and you know the good news is it's actually a bipartisan issue so both the republicans and democrats agree that this is a burden on americans it's also a burden up here in canada and it's a burden on canadians and so these drugs you know we're getting some really innovative new drugs but we're also getting some drugs that aren't really that great but they're just the only solution we have but the scarier thing about all of these drugs is that we're getting massive price tags on them so i think what's really important is a few things when it comes to some of these newer drugs one, we got to continue making sure that they work. Two is we got to figure out what the value is. You know, the companies pick a price, and their price picking is based on the burden or what the market can bear is what they would say. And there's been some reports that have leaked about how this is done, that what they think the indication is, how much you know, people think that's important, and, and then what the price is. But we shouldn't actually be doing that. What we should be doing is figuring out how well the drugs work, how much it can help our healthcare system and how well they work in which populations. And we should actually use real world evidence to figure that out. And then we should use economic models to tell us what is the price that we should be paying. And in some cases, the price is pretty high compared to what we think it should be. And in other cases, we shouldn't actually be paying that price because they're just thinking that, you know, it's a rare drug and they're just trying to make their money back. And, you know, as much as I'm supportive of private industry, and I think that it generates some really great innovations, there should also be a balance between what we're paying for drugs and their actual value. And I think that's what's sort of missing in a lot of times in these conversations is ensuring that there's value. The other part of this is ensuring that everyone has access to these medications, which means that we have to revamp the way that we pay for drugs and having insurance plans that are available to everybody and so as much as every so a misnomer that people don't understand is that even in Canada we actually don't have universal drug coverage, and so some of my work has been trying to draw a light to that that there's these people who fall into these gaps, and that gap is growing because more and more people are being involved in the gig economy. They don't have drug insurance of any sort because when you do that kind of work, uh, and then often insurance companies don't want to pay for these expensive drugs. So suddenly someone shows up, they get a diagnosis for hepatitis C, they get a diagnosis for RA, and they have this really expensive drug that either their insurance company won't pay for or they have no drug coverage at all. So where do they go? And how do we get that covered for them? So even if we get the price right and we say that, you know, this this agent is $20,000 a year, can anyone listening to this imagine what it would be like if you had to pay $20,000 a year just on one drug?
0: Your passion for the subject, your education, your experience, it's all really shining through and you have so many interests. How do you balance it all?
1: <laughs> great question. i probably have to ask my wife if she thinks I'm balancing it well at all. You know, I think that a lot of them align. They all feed into each other. So it's more like a Venn diagram rather than sort of hats that people wear. They all kind of build on top of each other that they feel, you know, a lot of my great questions and things come from being a clinician and working alongside other clinicians. Some of my learnings also come from the students that I get to be around and some of the great ideas that I, you know, that that, that come out of them, I'm able to kind of leverage. And then also, you know, I become really, you know, my North Star is just doing research that's impactful. You know, I make the joke that with my Ph.D. work, although it was very technical and methods heavy, there's probably about five people that read it. (laughs) and All five people are on my committee. And so they had to read it because that was their job. But There was no real, you know, I don't know how much real impact there would be from some of that. But then, you know, during some of my work with the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, I saw studies being used to shape drug policy. And so it changed the way that patients use that. And that sort of becomes how I balance all of this, because it becomes my North Star that I can shape, whether it's future students or policy. And that's how you kind of like try to find that balance. And if it doesn't align with that, then I don't, And I I try not to do it. There's some stuff we all have to do regardless, right? But I try not to do it because it doesn't align with sort of the vision that I have there. You do work
0: that really matters to you.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think, I, think, I think finding that passion is, is, is really, you know, I was really lucky to find it in pharmacy school and I'm forever grateful for that.
0: We're going to take a
2: quick break to hear from Dr. Dewey. We'll be right back. Hi, Greg Dewey. I'm the president of Albany College of Pharmacy and Health Sciences. We are moving to something, an era we call precision medicine. What does precision medicine mean? It means designing your medication regime based on your physiological state and your genetic state. So based on your genetics and on your current physiology, you can handcraft therapies for your particular state. That's precision medicine. That's a dream, but it's a dream that is close to being realized. And who's gonna realize that dream? It's the pharmacist, because they have the knowledge, that quantitative knowledge, they have uh, knowledge of the use of, of medication and how to best craft those dosages for, for your specific case. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot of advances in science that are pushing the frontier. Whole new fields are coming out. We've got this field called pharmacogenomics. Pharmacogenomics is the right drug for your genetic makeup, and that's a great area for pharmacists. Pharmacy is the central science, and we have to grow
1: out from that.
0: Mina, how did you make the transition from what you thought you might be going to do and what you wound up doing?
1: You know, I actually thought that I was going to be a historian, and then my mom told me, that they don't make a lot of money. And so I had to go find one of the immigrant approved professions. And so pharmacy was kind of it. And in pharmacy, I thought pharmacists like the research that we do is in laboratories. And it just that didn't resonate with me. I tried it out. I had some great experiences, actually, at ACPHS and did some of that work. And, and it wasn't and I, and I, I kind of gave up on research. And it wasn't until my rotation year that I got to work with Darren Triller and I got to work with Dr. Meek. And we did a meta analysis together. And I just it just sparked something in me that I was like, this is what I want to do. This is amazing. And I'm forever grateful for that opportunity. And I, you know, I'm lucky that I found this passion because yeah, you know, you're right. Like it, It's hard to kind of keep driven if you don't find that passion within it. (laughs) You know, I sound like such a millennial saying that, but that's the reality of it, right? Like, I think that sometimes it, it helps protect you from being burnt out.
0: Well, you're talking to a lot of people who are thinking about being students or thinking about entering this profession. What kinds of strengths do you think people need to have, need to develop, and what are some of the strengths that you use day to day?
1: You know, I think there's some skills that we don't really often talk about, that either one we you know we expect that students just get or have naturally, or we you know all of a sudden you're thrown into the workplace and you suddenly are you realize you don't have it. So one thing that was shocking to me is obviously as a scientist we write a lot. And as a pharmacy student and a clinician, we don't write at all. Like soap notes are not really that much writing compared to like writing a manuscript. And so finding opportunities to kind of work on those written skills, whether it be communicating through email or writing a paper, you know, trying to find ways to better communicate in, in the written format uh, is a skill set that we don't often get to use. The other thing is just project management, like being able to juggle multiple things. And so you see, you know, for me looking back, being able to kind of be a full-time student, but also I was really involved in like student government and I tried to do a lot of the different associations and, and being able to juggle all that meant that I had to develop skills in project management without realizing it. I was able to juggle a lot of things and, you know, different projects that are going but at the same time I had to study for exams. And that's super helpful as a researcher, because you have like seven or eight different projects that you're on at the same time, and they're all at different phases. And you have to be able to prioritize which one needs what, and when do you need to get things done. And so being able to have those skills has really been beneficial to being able to to juggle a lot of these things. And, and, And really, I learned all about that by doing a ton of leadership and being highly involved during pharmacy school.
0: Do you have any special memories of your time
1: in Albany? There's a lot of memories that I have in Albany. Every time I come to Albany, the one thing I miss is granny's wings. But uh, I think, you know, for me, I think there was a few of us that got together and we really revamped the student government and we created like, the, I don't even know if it's still there. We created like the Clubs Congress and we created the way that the structure is now. And it was actually the first time that, you know, they started having elections and there was a lot of great people that I got to work along. Like I was in, I was in the executive committee with Ryan Madison and Lindsay Davidson and Mike Nishad. And it was just a really great experience to kind of work along these really smart people I learned a ton from them on just how to be a proper leader and properly communicate. But building this thing from the very beginning was a lot, a lot of fun. Like we had to like, you know, design new logos and figure out how we were going to structure this and write a constitution and all that stuff and kind of gave me a bug for like that whole idea of building, which is what I do to this day. And as I'm, you know, I'm a junior researcher and trying to launch my career, I'm trying to build something out. And I'm sure those skills and memories that I have from doing that in Albany are going to hopefully help me out. You would
0: probably tell students then, get involved.
1: Oh, 100%. I tell that to students all the time. I I don't know how many times I get emails around October, November of fourth-year students who are gearing up to go to mid-year, and they, they realize that they want to explore different options, and they want to be competitive in the market that's happening, and they haven't done anything. And I'm like, well, you're not going to jam pack your CV in the next month. So, really, think about it from first year because you're not suddenly going to be able to be involved. And, like, when I look at a CV that comes through, I can tell when someone's just, like, padding it versus someone who's, like, inherently involved. Plus, when I meet them, it's obvious which students have been, had the opportunity to become polished. You know, these are sort of opportunities to really work on skills that fortunately or unfortunately we don't we can't build into curriculums you have to learn them through those experiences and then you're also able to network and you're able to meet a lot of people and it will really be beneficial to you so aside from just doing it because it's fun and it's a lot of a good thing to do career-wise it's also the very smart thing to do uh, whether it's for the networking or the skills development so 100 percent yeah get involved Try to find groups that make sense and you fit in well and uh, find projects that are your passion and, and sort of explore things, right? Like you don't have to like everything. Sometimes, you know, I, I look back and I, I think I figured out more what I didn't like than what I did like initially.
0: That sounds like great advice. Anything else you would add?
1: No, I think I've, I feel like I've talked a lot. Uh, no, I think I think that's great. I think I would just leverage that and, you know, try to get those experiences. I think that's always really great in talking to people. I You know, I guess one last piece of advice is that all students, if the students are listening to this, have a, like a, a pass. They have a pass that says I'm a student because all of us were students at one point, And we all promised, sort of, if you realized it or not, then when you were not a student, you would always give a chance to speak to students. So don't feel shy to email that random person and say, hey, you look really interesting on LinkedIn. Can I come have a coffee or chat with you or pick your brain or whatever it may be? You know, as, as a person who's done school, it's hard for me to do that because I don't have that in. But as a student, it's a really easy foot in the door and use it.
0: Mina Tadros, it's been a pleasure talking with you.
1: Thank you very much. Thanks for the opportunity and uh, always great to connect with folks from ACPHS.
0: For more information or to schedule a tour, visit acphs.edu. You can tune into to all of our informative stories at acphs.edu forward slash podcast. Each podcast is also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeart, and Spotify, giving you the opportunity to listen from a mobile device. Mark Occupation Station as a favorite and you'll receive push notifications as soon as we publish something new. Occupation Station is also a proud member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, the largest podcast content directory dedicated to the business and profession of pharmacy.